If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to the book of Acts in the New Testament? We're studying through the book of Acts. We find ourselves beginning chapter 15. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 21. We're going to read the first couple of verses to get a feel for where the chapter is going, and then we'll read the rest of it as we pursue it in our study. The topic of those verses, we'll see that certain men begin to insist that Gentiles must be circumcised according to the customs of Moses in order to be saved. The title of our message, Pro-Moses Keepers. Get it? It's a sleeper. Yes, yes, and you win the prize, whoever said that. Get that man a Bible. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Let's read verses 1 and 2. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Let's pray together. Father, as we've gathered together in your name, we want to have a sense of your presence in our midst. When you reveal yourself in the New Testament, in the book of the Revelation, Lord, you reveal yourself walking in the midst of your churches that gather together on the earth your church universal, but certainly your individual churches, your local churches. And so we take that to heart. We believe that you're here in a special way, in a powerful way, seeking to uh, share with us the mysteries of the grace of your love for us. And I pray that whatever situation we find ourselves in today, Lord, whether we're abounding in blessings or whether we're being abased by buffetings and sufferings, that you would draw close to us and that you would whisper to us, Lord, sweet and tender mercies from uh, your word. Bless us as you desire to do, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. There's a growing perception among young adults especially that Christianity is not very Christ-like. In a recent report, the Barna Research Group said perceptions among non-Christians are that present-day Christianity is judgmental, 87% of respondents, hypocritical, 85%, and old-fashioned, 78%. Criticism, however, was not limited to young people outside the Christian faith. Half of young churchgoers said they perceive Christianity to be judgmental and hypocritical. One-third said it was old-fashioned and out of touch with reality. Some of the criticism might be unfair, but if we simply dismiss it all, we're being judgmental, hypocritical, and old-fashioned. The truth is, in every generation, some of what passes itself as biblical Christianity is not very Christ-like. One of the recurring problems in the professing church that contributes to this is the tendency to add things to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hurting but hopeful people find their way to a church where they are told that they can be saved by grace through faith as long as they add something else to it. 
They're told that they must be water baptized or that they must keep the Sabbath and its many regulations or that there are certain required sacraments that they have to perform or that they must speak in other tongues. Even in churches that don't have a specific addition to the gospel, there is often an impression that certain behaviors are mandatory if you are to attain or maintain salvation. Usually it is an unwritten but very vocal list of prohibitions. This kind of overt or covert adding to the gospel contributes a lot to our becoming judgmental and hypocritical. It's old-fashioned in the sense that it's been around from the very beginning of the church. It was present in the early church as traveling teachers tried to insist that the Christians at Antioch must keep the customs of Moses in order to be saved. It's an understatement to say that this was a crucial moment in the history of the church. This is truly one of the most important chapters in your Bible. In the words of Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James, God gave a clear declaration that salvation is all of grace and not at all of works. Good old-fashioned grace will keep us from becoming judgmental or hypocritical, and it will keep us relevant in all cultures at all times. I'll organize my thoughts about grace around two points. Number one, be careful you don't add anything to the grace of God. And number two, be careful you don't take advantage of the grace of God. First of all, in verses 1 through 18, be careful you don't add anything to the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas had recently returned from a mission during which multitudes of Gentiles had received Jesus Christ and gotten saved. Now, it was nothing new for a Gentile to convert to becoming a Jew. The procedures had been in place for centuries. One of the requirements was physical circumcision. These new Gentile converts, however, were accepted by Paul and Barnabas as true believers without being required to be circumcised or keep any of the customs of the law of Moses. Did a Gentile need to keep the customs of the law of Moses in order to be truly saved? Or as we would put it today, is salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Or is it by grace through faith plus some additional work or works that I must perform? It's by grace alone. So let's see how the Holy Spirit guided the church to give us that final answer. Verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, later on in the chapter, we're going to see that these certain men acted as though they were sent by the authority of James and the apostles at Jerusalem. They were not. They were acting on their own. Be careful who you listen to. Often people will try to insert themselves into your life, but God has not given them the authority. Male circumcision was the physical representation of the spiritual separation God required of the nation of Israel. God intended it to symbolize the cutting away of the flesh of the heart, leaving you spiritual and disposed towards obedience. Circumcision by itself, physical circumcision, accomplished nothing. It didn't save you. 
It was just a mark in the flesh that you were a believer and were separated uh, from the world unto God. The custom of Moses indicates that these guys were suggesting more than just circumcision. They wanted the Gentiles to observe Jewish dietary rules and regulations and to keep the Sabbath rules and regulations. Suddenly, a vibrant, exciting work of evangelism there at the church at Antioch came to a complete standstill. That observation alone ought to at least give you a clue that something was terribly wrong with this grace plus message. Paul and Barnabas had just returned or recently returned from a year-long mission in chapter 14 where amazing miracles took place. It was, uh, you know, Paul may have been stoned to death and raised from the dead, go back into the city and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conversions among the Gentiles everywhere. The church was rejoicing and excited. Then these guys come down from Jerusalem claiming to have the authority of the Jerusalem church and saying, well, okay, that's good as far as it goes. Now you Gentiles you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the dietary regulations. You need to keep the Sabbath. And everything that had been going on came to a complete halt. And that by itself is a clue that there's something wrong. In verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. This is one of those little scenes I'd like to have uh, on YouTube, you know. Uh, if they had YouTube back then, this would be great. I, what does it really mean? Wouldn't you like to see Paul having no small dissent with somebody? I mean, this was, these are fighting words for Paul. I mean, you know, he was the guy that's going to write the book of Romans, the great doctrinal treatise of the Christian faith, where he explains what it means to be justified by grace alone through faith alone. It was the cornerstone of the Christian Reformation. And here were guys saying, eh, you need to be circumcised. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, this is Paul wanting to take them out behind the church and <laughs> show them a thing or two. But even Barnabas was involved. Big Barnabas, who we'll see next time we're together, always trying to bring people together, always trying to be an encourager. Even he couldn't find a way to bring these sides together. He also had no small dissension with them. And so it says they determined, in verse 2, that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem and uh, to the apostles and elders about this question. Instead of souls being added to eternity, the church was thrown into dissension and dispute. Since these guys claimed to have the authority of Jerusalem, the leadership in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to have a face-to-face -face discussion with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So being sent on their way, verse 3, by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Paul and Barnabas were not going to Jerusalem to get an answer to this question. There was no confusion with Paul and Barnabas about how a person was saved. It was by grace alone through faith alone. And we know that because as they traveled to Jerusalem, they met to encourage the churches and they talked about what God had done through them out in the Gentile world. They didn't say, well, we'd like to tell you, but we have to decide if those people are really saved or not. And so they're not in any confusion. And notice, I like it, th this verse is here for a contrast. They caused great joy to all the brethren as they continued to share about God's free grace. Compare that effect 
to that of the Judaizers. Some of you have been in or come out of certain uh, church environments where everything was a burden, where, where you were always, uh, things were just being heaped upon you and thrown upon you. There was always something more you had to do for God. Maybe they didn't tell you it was, you know, in order to be saved or stay saved, but still it was a tremendous burden. As, and, and a lot of people were just chafing under it or, or breaking under it. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ ought to remove burdens. It ought to take burdens away. It ought to bring great joy to our hearts and to our souls and to our lives. The world has enough burden of its own. In our flesh, we carry enough burdens. The church doesn't need to add to that. And, and so I believe that it is significant uh, the, the, what you might call the atmosphere of a group of Christians. Is it joyous? It ought to be. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And there needs to be a joy, not some dour, sour presence. Oh, oh praise the Lord. It's the Eeyore church, I call it. <laughs> Now, if, if that's the great, I mean, if, if you're even worse than that and that's your big expression of joy, more power to you. And it's not so much even the physical expression of it. Joy is something that, that it, it, it's just, it's almost tangible. I mean, you can act like you have joy and not have it or you can be a little bit serious but have joy. You know what I'm talking about. There is a positive joy. These people seem to know what they believe in. These seem, people seem to think that Jesus is alive and powerful and able to save and able to help. And it, it permeates everything that they do and, and hopefully that we do. And so this is a, a, you know, by no means is Paul waiting to hear what James or the apostles tell him about the gospel. He's received it directly from Jesus Christ. If anything, he's going down to straighten them out if, in fact, they're a part of this. And so in verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. As they were sharing their amazing stories of Gentile salvation at a public meeting of the church, a group that insisted upon keeping the law of Moses interrupted the proceedings. It seems then a private meeting took place between the delegation from Antioch and the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church. In that meeting, it was determined that first Peter, then Barnabas and Paul, and finally James would address the entire church. It says in verse 7, and when there had been much dispute. Now, this probably means much dispute among the members of the church while the leaders were meeting. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication that there was an argument between Peter and James and uh, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they weren't working out their doctrine. They really were all in agreement. The problem was coming from these Teachers, sometimes called Judaizers because they wanted to bring Gentiles back into Judaism. The dissent and dispute was among the members of the church. It's a sad commentary, and it's always a sad commentary when a church is known more for its disputes and divisions rather than representing Jesus Christ. 
And this is always a danger, even in the best, most Bible-teaching church, because maybe it's not a doctrine of, you know, essential salvation, but I've noticed over the years I've been in ministry, Christians have a penchant for finding some small area of doctrine that they want to emphasize, and then they evangelize other Christians into their way of thinking. And little pockets of belief grow up in churches that grind that church's programs to a halt because everybody is confused about this particular doctrinal viewpoint. And it's, to me, it's very sad. I know that there are things that Christians must agree to disagree upon. We should do so agreeably. There are a handful of orthodox Christian doctrines that everyone must believe if they're a Christian. But there are a lot of things we can disagree upon. The timing of the Lord's return. You know, and, and certain things about the end times. These are not critical doctrines. But people, they have their own, well, no, yes, they are, you say. And we have to start saving people out of the pre-tribulation position and get them over here to our preterist or mid-tribulation position. And, and, and we're not going to leave Calvary Chapel alone until we get everybody on board with the real teaching of the Bible. And, and, and it's sad to me that we can't just agree to disagree and say, hey, why don't we just go tell people Jesus is coming why are we arguing with each other about the timing? Why don't we go tell people he is coming who are going to perish when he comes? And if it's not that issue, it'll be a hundred more. We've been blessed over the years not to have a lot of that, but I've watched other churches, Calvary chapels even split apart because certain people begin to embrace a particular doctrinal viewpoint, a nuance of doctrine, and then they evangelize other people and there's a kind of an intellectual superiority that they get. And, and it's a terrible thing when churches are characterized that way. We want to be known for bringing people to Jesus Christ so that people can have their sins forgiven and be on their way to eternity. And then it says here in verse 7, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, apparently the official meeting of the Leaders was over, and they come back to the church assembly, and Peter says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. God had some years earlier sent Peter to preach to the Gentile household of Cornelius. We read about it earlier in our studies in Acts. The methods God used were nothing short of miraculous. There could be no mistaking that it was God's will that the gospel be preached to the Gentiles. Neither could there be any disputing that Cornelius and his household were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The Holy Spirit saved them while Peter was still talking and without any reference to works of any kind. Still, it might be argued that Cornelius was already a devout man. He had a great knowledge of and a sympathy for the customs of Moses. These more recent Gentile converts of Paul and Barnabas were pagan through and through. 
So Peter made it clear that God intended to save everyone by grace alone, through faith alone, regardless of their ethnicity or their relationship to the law of Moses. In verse 10, he says, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? No mincing words here. The efforts of the Judaizers to force Gentiles to keep the customs of the Jews like circumcision, Peter says that's something that tests God, tempts God, offends God. We should bear that in mind anytime we want to add something to a person's attaining or maintaining salvation. Peter compared the customs of Moses like circumcision and Sabbath regulations to a burdensome yoke. It was his way of reminding the church that he had personally heard Jesus invite those who were already burdened by the customs of Moses to come to him because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Catch the word order. We, Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles. Peter was putting Gentiles first. It's stunning. Not only are Gentiles saved without adopting the customs of the Jews, Jews cannot be saved by keeping them. Of course, they never could. Something more here, too. We'll see it when James talks. Peter is indicating that we are in a time of history when God has turned things around. And though the Jew was a candidate for salvation, God was taking the gospel to the Gentile world. Barnabas and Paul took the floor. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. You really can't argue with a genuine work of God. You should rather be in awe of it. And in verse 13, it says, after they had become silent. It seems like the crowd needed to quiet down a little bit. What were they doing? Well, I'd like to think they were amening and shouting, praise the Lord. Peter had laid a little foundation, and then Paul and Barnabas came and said, well, we just want to tell you what happened when we preached the gospel to Gentiles. And man, did a lot of incredible things happen, and did God testify through them that he had opened up the door of the gospel to the whole world. And so in verse 13, after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now this James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He emerges in the book of Acts as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He did something essential he gave everything that Peter had said and that Barnabas and Paul had said a biblical basis. He tied it to the scriptures. Now, it's wonderful to have experiences, but those experiences, if they're genuine, need to have a biblical basis. 
A lot of times people feel like if you try to find a biblical basis for your experiences, you are somehow quenching the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who gives these experiences, who performs these miracles and signs and wonders, is that Holy Spirit who inspired these men to write the Scripture. He won't disagree with himself. If anything, finding a spiritual or scriptural basis for what you're doing enhances your experience of God. And so, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, you know, uh, this happened and that happened and this happened. And, well, I don't know if that's biblical. Oh, it has, it, we don't care if it's biblical, it happened. How can it be not biblical? It's so fantastic. You know, people ran around the church. One guy, you know, jumped through the stained glass window. He was so filled with the Spirit. Uh, you know, and, and I mean, there's a lot. Of, I've had a lot of crazy experiences before I even became a Christian. I had crazy experiences. And they were real in some kind of a mental realm that I was living in at the time. Uh, but they weren't biblical. And so there's nothing wrong. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, you guys are too conservative. You want everything to have a biblical basis. It's the Holy Spirit's basis. It's God's basis. There's nothing wrong with testing the spirits to see if they're from God. About half of the prophecies I've heard over the years in Pentecostal churches are not prophecies. There's some kind of a condemnation because somebody's having a personal problem with somebody else in the church. Thus says the Lord, I will wipe you out. <laughs> I've had a lot of these myself. I've probably been prophesied over more than any person in Hanford. I don't know what it is about me that people don't like. I'm such a nice guy. But a lot of people, especially in the early years, there were a lot of Pentecostal people who would come to me and say, I have a prophecy for you. I go, is it that prophecy in Ezekiel about the false shepherds? Yeah, how did you know? So I get that every few weeks. But go ahead and lay it on me. Thus says the Lord, you're going to get killed. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, just not from the Lord. And so there's nothing wrong with testing these things in the Scripture. James quoted the Old Testament prophet Amos, specifically Amos 9, 11 and 12. When you go there later, you'll see that the preceding verses tell of the nation of Israel being sifted among the Gentile nations of the world. There's going to be a time, God says, when he sets aside Israel, a time of judgment, a time of discipline, a time of punishment, when they're sifted by the Gentile nations of the world. The verses immediately following Amos 9, 11, and 12 describe the nation of Israel being restored permanently to her land during a future millennial kingdom on earth. What James was showing them from God's word was that the saving of the Gentiles in between these two events was already part of God's plan and it was happening right then. God was not through and is not through fulfilling his promises to the Jews, but for now we live in an age when God is calling men from all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, into the church, and he's doing it on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, without respect to the customs of the law of Moses. No one is to ever add anything to the gospel of grace, not the customs of Moses, like circumcision and Sabbath regulations, not dietary restrictions, not water baptism, 
not any sacraments of any kind, not speaking with other tongues, not even our own unspoken rules of behavior, not our rules of the do's and don'ts of what makes you spiritual. The doctrinal issue is settled. There was, however, a practical issue to be addressed, and in verses 19 and 21, James does that. Be careful you don't take advantage of the grace of God. You have to remember that Jews and Gentiles had very little social contact until God started using Jews to preach the gospel to Gentiles. For the first time, they were coming together in the church of Jesus Christ, and they had close contact. And by close contact, I mean they'd have meals with one another. They, you'd, you know, after church, you'd go to lunch uh, you know, with your Jewish and Gentile friends, and now you've got you know, what the British would call a sticky wicket which I don't know what that is, but, and I don't really want to. But anyway, it's just one of those things that pops into your head because you have a history of drug abuse. But anyway, <laughs> I caught you on that one. Uh, and so you'd have lunch, and, 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 and now you're in a quandary because you're a Jew and you become a Christian, but you, know, you grew up your whole life with a certain lifestyle, you ate certain foods, you didn't eat certain foods, and, and, you know, this was just the way it was in your culture. And now you're with your Gentile friend who's been eating raw pork since he was a baby, probably, or something, you know, and so it creates a problem. There's a scene like that in Chariots of Fire. Do you remember when uh, one of the guys, uh, I want to say Ben Cross, who's playing the rival of, of Eric Liddell, he's out to dinner with his Gentile girlfriend and he orders something in a French restaurant. And he says, oh yeah, it sounds great. And they bring it, it's a pig, you know, and stuff. And he's Jewish. And so they laugh, ha, 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 you know, because he can't eat it because he's a Jew. And so this is the situation. So you've got a social dilemma. And so verse 19, we find that the theology of grace needed an accompanying sociology. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Jewish believers need not trouble Gentiles to keep the customs of Moses to be saved. But should Gentiles expect their Jewish brothers and sisters to act like them? The answer is no. While Jews should not stumble Gentiles by expecting them to keep the customs of Moses, neither should Gentiles stumble the Jews by flaunting their liberty. Verse 20. We write to them uh, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled, and from blood. After an animal was sacrificed in a pagan temple to the pagan idol, most of the meat remained and would be taken to the public marketplace where it would be sold and the proceeds would come to the temple. That meat, I'm also told, was sold at a discount. And so you could get good, solid Harris Ranch idle meat <laughs> at a discount rather than some of this rot gut stuff, you know, that, that comes in. I mean, this is the good stuff, and it's discounted because it had already been handled uh, in the uh, temple. And so if you're a Gentile, whether you were an idol worshiper or not, hey, you bought cheaper meat. However, it offended Jews right out of the gate to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Even though they had come to Jesus Christ, Jews culturally were sensitive to idolatry. Uh, God 
worked it out of them in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And, and, and they really are sensitive to idol worship. This is what triggers a real problem in the Great Tribulation because the Jews will have a rebuilt temple and one day the man, that will, the world leader who will reveal himself as the Antichrist demands that he is worshipped as God and the Jews say, hey, we don't believe in Jesus Christ but we don't, we're not worshipping you either because we don't do idol worship anymore. Uh, and so this was a real problem. So if you were having a Jewish believer over for lunch, you shouldn't brag about getting a sweet deal on idol meat from the marketplace. If the Jew was smart, he wouldn't ask. Don't ask, don't tell kind of a policy there. But as a Gentile, and I can see some of us doing this, sadly. Have your Jewish friend over in the first century, barbecue going on in the backyard, wait until he takes that first bite. Hey, how'd you like that meat? Man, that's a good cut of meat. Yeah, it was sacrificed to Diana. What do you think about that? <laughs> See, I knew it wouldn't kill you because you're trying to bring them up to speed, you know, trying to help them to be more mature in Christ. Oh, what do you think about this? And they vomit back up at you, you know. So, I mean, it's, this is a real serious situation. Hey. I'm just being real. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you've probably gotten stumbled by somebody. Somebody's probably done something to you or brought you somewhere or invited you to dinner or something that has really offended you. And it might have been something okay to do or, you know, it's not one of the, you know, it, it, it's not a mortal sin or something like that. But this happens all the time among Christians. And sometimes, sadly, Christians do it on purpose because they're trying to help you to be more mature. And so they expose you to certain things to break you out of that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Living by grace does not give you the liberty to stumble a weaker brother or sister. Not at all. You want to have grace? You want to eat meat sacrificed to idols? You want to eat it all day long? Great. But if you know that it's going to offend your Jewish brother or sister, buy other meat, buy kosher meat, or don't tell them where it came from. Now, James next suggests that Gentiles abstain from sexual immorality. It was a matter of fact that the surrounding Gentile world had a much lower standard of morality than the average Jew. The Jews received God's view of morality, of sexual behavior, of the sanctity of marriage from the scriptures. And though they didn't keep it perfectly, they knew that that was the standard. Outside of the Bible, outside of the Old Testament, in the Gentile world, it was very much like our world today, filled with kind of an anything goes, sexual freedom, pornography, you know, all of these different things. Now, if you're a Gentile and you got saved in that world, out of that environment, especially if you had never really been exposed to God's teachings about sexual morality, the question would come up, what is proper moral behavior for a Christian? And so uh, James is very right to say, hey, you can't continue in the Gentile sexual immorality of the surrounding culture, and that isn't being legalistic. 
He's not adding anything to salvation. He's just saying, look, you guys don't know at all anything about what God has said about this. And it is not legalism to read God's word and to walk in ways that are pleasing to God. Uh, And so that's what's going on there. And it's something that we should take to heart today. Our culture is in the toilet when it comes to sexual morality. I mean, it is. Uh, If you think back five years ago, 10 years ago even, 90% of what is in media, and I'm not just picking on TV, but all the media, wouldn't be allowed. And and you want to have the argument about sexual freedom and all of this kind of stuff, but You know, this is the same today. James' letter, hey, you should abstain from sexual immorality uh, and get back to what God says about marriage and sexual behavior in the Bible. Why? Because God loves us. And uh, these are the things that will give us joy and uh, that will fulfill us as human beings, not what the world is showing us. And then finally, James asked Gentiles to respect Jewish dietary restrictions. That's the background of the phrase, things strangled and from blood. This has to do with the preparation of certain foods and the serving of certain foods. A Gentile could be thankful. He could eat whatever he wanted, but he need not criticize a Jew for having personal convictions. Now, this goes beyond just not stumbling others by forcing our liberties upon them. We should respect their conscience about things. My liberty isn't necessarily a sign of maturity. Neither is someone's personal convictions a sign of immaturity. It is a falsehood to think that because I can do something, that it is necessarily a sign of maturity in my life. Quite honestly, I've seen a lot of people over the years who said, yeah, I have this liberty in Christ a year or five years or 10 years later, completely stumbled by what they brought back into their life as a liberty. And so just because I can, you know, go here, do this, eat this, partake of that, doesn't necessarily make me more mature. And if I have a conviction about something, I don't go see movies with this rating, I don't do this, I don't do that, that doesn't make me immature. All of these have to do with my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These are issues I resolve personally with the Lord, and I come out of that prayer time with a conviction that, you know, this just isn't for me. Maybe it's for you. I can see that it's a gray area. The Bible doesn't specifically prohibit it. Okay, but it's not for me. Doesn't make you more mature. Doesn't make me less mature. Now, I've told you for years, everybody gets mad at me when I bring this up. Maybe this is why I get prophesied over. But, uh, you know, but I'm very gentle about this. I hate alcohol. I mean, I absolutely hate it. If there's one thing I could do to save the world, wouldn't have anything to do with the uh, global warming, it would have to do with alcohol. I would just eliminate alcohol uh, off the face of the earth. Uh, However, I understand that the Bible doesn't say you can't drink. It only says you cannot be drunk. If you get drunk, you're in sin. So if people think they can have beer, wine, hard liquor, whatever it is, and enjoy that without getting drunk, I have to bite my tongue, and I can't get legalistic about that and tell you that it's a sin. However, I don't want to drink. I, I drank everything I wanted to drink before I was a Christian. 
By the time from when I was in the eighth grade until I was in my early 20s, uh, I had been on one long binge drinking adventure that was occasionally split up by hair-raising hallucinogenic episodes. And so, I, you know, I'm joking about it, but I had alcohol poisoning. I thought, when I, when I first started, my first day at the University of California, Riverside, I almost went to the hospital because I had drank so much tequila the night before, I thought I was going to die. It took me two weeks to recover from that binge. I mean, I seriously thought that I had, and I probably had alcohol poisoning, I thought I was going to die. And now that I'm 52 years old, a lot of things that I used to be able to do have died. I mean, I can't remember things, I do weird things, uh, and I blame that. Uh, you know, it's more than old age, because I'm still in pretty good shape, I'm not that old, but you know, I'm not the person I could have been. Uh, and so, you know, I'm just not into a social drink. I don't want to do that. Now, am I immature? No. Am I mature? No. I just don't do that. Are you more mature because you can take a drink with dinner? No. Are you less mature? No. This is what we're talking about. We need to be careful in these areas. For me, uh, you know, alcohol is a thing strangled from blood. I'm just not going to do it. And so, you know, for you, that might be great. Each of us has these areas in our life things that we then want to project onto others. I can't do that. You shouldn't be able to do it. Why? Because I can't do it. <laughs> I can do this. You should do that. I don't want to. Why? Well, because I do. And, and these are real problems within the Christian church. They should be covered by love. They are sociological problems, though, not doctrinal problems. And that's the difference here. The doctrine was resolved. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But we still have to get along. Today, the issues are different. They're, you know, tattoos, ear piercings, length of hair, color of hair, all of that kind of a thing. Now, don't tell me there aren't some people here who think it's not spiritual to have a tattoo. And don't tell me that there aren't people here who think that I can't wait to get my next tattoo. You know, and stuff. And, and so there's always an issue like this in the church. And this is why 87% of young people in the world today think the church in general, I'm not talking about our church, but the church is judgmental, hypocritical, and old-fashioned. Is it? No. It's just not emphasizing grace anymore. It's emphasizing the law, some written or unspoken law that makes you spiritual in that group of people. And so in verse 21, for Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Brilliant conclusion because it reminded Jews and Gentiles of the bigger picture that they had been distracted from during this discussion. James is saying every Sabbath all over the Roman Empire, Moses is being preached. In other words, Jews are gathering in their synagogue. Paul and Barnabas have been going to the Jewish synagogues because it gives them an immediate audience from which to preach Jesus Christ. And there are multitudes of Jews getting saved who are then going out into the Gentile world preaching the gospel. Why do the Gentiles now want to completely offend the Jewish world, closing the doors of all those synagogues? Don't you want those Jews to hear the gospel and get saved? And so it's not just a good conclusion. It's, it's a refocusing 
of the gospel on outreach rather than this internal dissension. If anything other than believing on Jesus Christ was necessary for a person to be saved, it would have been listed in Acts 15. Do you see anything there? No. Those who insist on adding anything to grace, no matter how sincere they are, no matter how biblical it sounds, they offend God. Not circumcision, not keeping the Sabbath, not dietary rules and regulations, not water baptism, not speaking in tongues, not any of these other rules and regulations we come up with on our own. All of those are additions to the gospel that offend God. Why does it offend God? Because when you add works of any kind to grace, you cause those Jesus died for to stumble in their walk. And a stumbled person gets hurt. You ever, you ever had to, uh, taken a really bad fall? Sometimes you fall and it's not so bad. The other day, in fact, it was, uh, well, I forget what day it was, but I don't know if you noticed, I was hobbling a little bit last Sunday. In the dark, you know, I got up in the morning, I think it was Friday or Saturday morning, and for some reason, I decided I was going to kick something out of the way. Oh, man, what a mistake. <laughs> what I tried to kick out of the way didn't move. <laughs> and I broke my toe. And, uh, you know, and then I fell forward and I missed hitting a chair by this much, which would have, I'm sure, broken my neck and rendered me a paraplegic. <laughs> but thank you for your prayers and your consideration. <laughs> I'm okay. But, uh, you know, sometimes you take a really bad fall and you can break things. You can paralyze yourself. And it's a spiritual analogy. There are people who stumble, who are stumbled by these kinds of doctrinal teachings or behavioral teachings, and they never really recover. I'm not saying they're not Christians. You'd have to look at it individually, but, but some people never recover from those kinds of falls. They never really find their purpose in the body of Christ and all. Uh, and so we need to be so careful when sharing the gospel with non-believers or even amongst ourselves, that we are never adding anything to the sweet and precious, amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ. Live in it, walk in it, season everything you do with it so that people find hope and joy in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. What a pivotal moment in the history of the church. How exciting, Lord, that you solved it so easily. As we'll go on, Lord, and see that it didn't satisfy these false teachers, and it won't stop until you come back for us. Guard and protect our own church from any kind of doctrinal error or any kind of behavioral uh, emphasis that is other than grace. Guard the larger Christian community of Kings County and I pray, Lord, that we would be about the business of shining our light so that men and women who need the grace of your free forgiveness would come in and be saved. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.